0: Thank you so much for being here. I want to welcome you uh, to Northway Church. It is such a joy. It's such an honor to gather with you each week and to worship. And what I love is throughout Scripture, what we see is that while each of us has to make an individual profession of faith, that profession of faith propels us into a community that we were not created to follow Jesus alone but that we are saved into a family, into a body of believers. And so I wanna thank you for being here today. I wanna thank you for making it a priority to be here. That because you said yes to being here and worshiping with us in unity as a body of believers, you said no to other things, right? You said no to sleeping in, you said no to maybe the lake for a little bit. And so I just wanna thank you for making corporate worship a priority because we really believe that something special happens when we come together as God's people and in unity proclaim his goodness and that he alone is worthy of the glory and the praise. You guys feel free to have a seat. Uh, This morning, we have the honor of sitting under the preaching of our student pastor, Chris Wegman. And Chris is gonna be preaching from Psalm chapter 78. If you wanna turn there in your Bibles, or on your phones, or it'll be on the screen as well. I'd like for us to read that together as we transition from worshiping through music to worshiping through the preaching of God's word. So again, we'll be in Psalm 78. We'll begin in verse four and we'll read together through verse seven. And this is what it says. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel when he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God. And not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your goodness. God, as we just sang, you are faithful. And while we come in here with a lot of different things weighing on us and baggage and circumstances, we recognize that in the midst of them all, you are faithful, God. We thank you for your word. We thank you that through it, you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be with Chris, that you would use him to communicate your message to us today. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would give us ears to hear. In your name we pray. Amen.
1: Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Chris. I'm the student pastor here at Northway. And uh, my wife and I have only been here for a year so you may not have met us. And also, we're over usually in our student area, so there's a lot of new faces in this, way, in this room, and uh, it's, it's nice to meet each other, isn't it? Uh, I want to show you a picture of my awesome family. Uh, this is my wife, Mariana. We've been married for seven and a half years, so today will be marriage tips, because I know everything. No, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> It was a really bad joke. Uh, that is my, that's my wife, and that is also our son. He is, his name is Jack. He is 20 months old, uh, and I am about to drop the months, but I, I don't want you to know that he's only a year and a half. I want you to know that he's a year and a half and two months. Okay, so I don't know when the months will go away, but it's not yet. Uh, my wife and I, well, before I get into it, we really just want to thank you for the last year of ministry. Uh, we came here <clears throat> last May, and... Whether we know each other or not, um, you have had an impact on our life that uh, has been incredibly refreshing and um, incredibly genuine. You guys are a genuine church, and this isn't just a plug for this church from someone who's been here forever and gets paid to do it. Uh, This is someone who's pretty new and can really say that this church is a family. Um, And if you have had the pleasure of holding my son in preschool or the displeasure of changing a diaper, uh, you are seen. I know a lot of times if you are in the, what seems like the back closet of the back of the kids' hall and you think that no one sees you or you don't have an effect on this church family, um, I want you to know with, without a shadow of a doubt, nothing could happen on this stage without you doing what you do. Um, and so thank you from the bottom of my heart. Uh, this morning I get to preach and this is gonna be really fun. Uh, we are in Psalm 78, as Stephen just read. And so um, the Psalms for me, as I was getting ready for this, uh, my background is a pastor's kid. So immediately, I don't know if you can trust me. You know what I mean? Like pastor's kids are, there's something else. Uh, not our pastor's kids, obviously. Kevin, your kids are great, man. Uh, thank, you for, <laughs> thank you for raising them right. But everyone else is just, you know, there's just something about being a pastor's kid. You hear a lot of Jesus and uh, a lot of other things too, right? And so growing up in church, my dad has been faithfully preaching God's word for over 40 years, and it is the reason why uh, the, I am the person I am today. But when I talk about the Psalms, it was always something that I didn't know what to do with, truly. Uh, also, being a guy, poetry's not my thing, right? Growing up, I'm like, all right, I don't know what to do with this. I wasn't patient enough. But then it really just kind of hit me, the fact that God uh, had it so there would be 150 of these Psalms in our book. So I think we should read them. Right? And so for the past five years or so, if I'm doing my relationship with God correctly, I am being affected uh, by a different psalm every single morning. And I'm applying that scripture to my life. I'm not saying I do it every morning, but the mornings I am, I am crushing it, if you will, uh, I, am, I am learning from the psalms and applying it to my life. And so I think before we get started, um, I find so often that I'm convicted every time I preach. I get the pleasure of preaching every week to students. Um, is that a lot of scripture I take for granted. And I I skip over massive chunks of like Levitical law, thinking that, you know, it's just not for me. It was written 2,000 years ago. But I think as a church and as a culture, we should should really begin to weigh uh, the importance of of God's word on our lives every morning. And uh, that sentence that I just said was probably the easiest thing that I've ever had to do in my life from this stage, right? I'm talking... I'm a pastor getting paid by church to be a good person. I'm talking to people at church in the southeast part of our country. No persecution ever, ever, ever. And I just said a sentence essentially saying, you should read your Bible, right? I know that that's easy. But the reason I'm doing that this morning is that I know that once we leave this room, and I know that in the middle of an argument, and I know that when cancer happens and when divorce is looking like it's on the horizon, I want to give you some ammunition from Psalm 78, that you can use this week because God's word is not just good, it's life-giving. It should be a lifeline of ours. And again, that's an easy sentence too, but it's going to be harder when I apply it to my parenting and to my marriage. So Psalm 78, if you have it open, you're going to read the first part is a little bit of a prelude. And the the translators and scribes who have taken this from the original text all the way to where we have it now, have seen fit to keep in this little bit of information that you and I, before this message, probably skipped over. And it simply says, a maskle of Asaph. Just to be honest, I had a 2.9 GPA in high school, so I was crushing it. Uh, You know, I could have done better. My parents are watching. I think they knew that. I don't know. Um, But... Those two words, okay, what do they mean, right? So the first word, I did some Googling, which you should if you spend time in God's word. Masculine is essentially a psalm of instruction. And and why that differs is a lot of the psalms are are, are writers saying, okay, this is how we're gonna worship God. We're literally speak these words in a song and then like we just did, and that's the way we're gonna worship. And it's really an amazing tactic that most of the psalms are like. But then there are these psalms, especially from Asaph, the next word, that is a psalm of instruction. So here's what that means. It's not just reader, read this, intake it, know it. It's saying, no, 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 reader, 2,000 years ago and then today. This needs to be applied ASAP. This needs to actually change the way you live. And so the masculine is from a guy named Asaph. And Asaph uh, was a guy who was doing the music. He was the, um, the chief musician of King David which is really cool, right? And we know that he began in that way, but also he gained influence so much so that in 2 Chronicles, when it talks about the dedication of Solomon's temple, which is one of the more important parts of the Old Testament, it's it's one of the more important buildings in the Old Testament, it was Asaph who was leading the music. And from there, we learn in the Chronicles and in the Old Testament that he was also uh, an officer of the kingdom at that time. And this is really cool. That means that Asaph would have been an officer right underneath King David during the good times in 1 Samuel, and then during the, we'll call it tough times in 2 Samuel, where David goes off his rocker completely, right? So he hears all the good. He's led by an amazing man of God, a man after God's own heart, but also he hears all the bad. And so he writes this with those in mind. But lastly, Asaph was talked about as a seer or a prophet. So this would have meant that he is speaking on God's behalf to the people. So in 2023, when we read something like that, and it's still there, it means that there's something we should take from it. And here's what we can take from it. The original readers 2,000 years ago, they would have seen, oh, wait, this is a masculine. I need to actually apply it to my life. And this is from Asaph. You mean the musician of all the things I just said? Yeah, I'm going to be on the edge of my seat listening in a different way. It's the same as if a Davidic psalm. So King David, he's went through all the junk he's went through, but still proclaims God as good. We're going to listen differently to that than just any other author. So we have a masculine of Asaph. And with this short intro, we finally get to scripture. Look at verse 1. It says, give ear, O my people, to my teaching." Incline your ears to the words of my mouth, essentially saying, don't just read this, but apply it. Really, there's two ways that we get to read the script the Bible. The first way is descriptive. A lot of Old Testament history, we get to just it's described to us. The way we look through scripture is, oh, this is a story, it's a narrative. I don't have to apply anything to my life. I just need to know how King David was raised and all these things that made him into the person that he is. That's descriptive. But then there's another beautiful way of reading scripture that's very prevalent and it is prescriptive. It's the way that a doctor prescribes medicine to you, but not only does that, because that wouldn't be good enough, he then tells you how to take it and then probably don't take it on an empty stomach. This is what the masculine of Asaph means right now. He is prescribing everything that's about to happen and he's saying, people, don't just hear me. Don't just listen, but actually apply it. There's a difference between those two words in there. We can hear everything, but I get to choose to listen to selective things. Marriage, am I I right? Yeah, we get to selectively hear, selectively listen to what we want to, and Asaph is locking in the readers from verse one. We know his background. They would have known who Asaph is, and they would have said, okay, let's lock into what happens. And here's another thing I want to tell you I want to point your attention to when we read these verses today is that most if not all the Bible is written in an active voice and that makes a lot of sense to me because passivity in our relationship with Jesus never leads to closeness with him it actually will always lead the opposite way there are only two things we can do with our relationship with Jesus either try or do nothing and tomorrow. I'm 31. That means that I have 25 years of knowing Jesus and being a pastor's kid and now being a professional Christian. And if I wake up tomorrow and do nothing about my relationship with God, I promise you I will sprint towards selfishness. So here he's saying, no, no, no. Actively listen to what I'm about to say because it's important. Look at verse 2. It says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. Verse 4, we will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Asaph essentially wants the readers to know three things right off the bat. Of all the things that he's going to say, and if you've looked ahead in your Bible, there's 72, 74 verses in there. We're not going to go through all of them, right? But what he's saying initially is, okay, if nothing else, grasp that these three things, that God is glorious, that he is mighty, and that the wonders that he has done are insane. But, but look at verse 4 again. Like first read through, not much. Second read through, third read through, you're like, wow, it almost seems as if Asaph is insinuating that they didn't tell the coming generations because he says here we will not hide them from our children but we're actually going to do it so it says the father's told them but maybe not in a full way or maybe generation after generation they just forgot and they didn't do this and it says here all these things are true about God and church isn't that the reason we're here because if it was based upon my performance I'd have to wake up every morning and look at the Bible and and talk to God and say God do you love me because I, I failed yesterday I failed a lot yesterday, actually. Oh, Yesterday was a bad day, and I haven't been in church in three weeks, so do you, do you, can I still talk to you? But God is who he is, full stop. There's nothing that's going to change that. Thankfully, that's really good news for us. But here he brings us back, and he says, we need to understand and charge the readers of, do your children know? Okay, yeah, God, are, God is these things, but do you, you live changed by the fact that God is mighty? Or do you worry about everything thinking that he's not? Are you belittling the power of God in your life and you call yourself a Christian? Or do you actually live in peace that passes understanding? And again, church, you don't know me that well, maybe. Again, that was one of the easier things I'll say, right? We've been going through a sermon series where Pastor Kevin, thankfully, is doing a lot of heavy lifting up here, right? He's talking about progressive Christianity. This morning, this is simple stuff. To say, but it's stuff that Asaph seems to think that they've forgotten. As we look at our culture today and its opinion of the church and the Bible and of God, here's the question I want to ask: What if there was a way to break the generational Christianity movement that's happening? And here's the movement, right? It's it's somebody was raised in church. That's kind of like hundreds of years ago. It was just matter of fact. You go to church. But then they had kids and whether their uh, uh, background was great and they loved going to church or especially if they did not love going to church and if they then found out that their parents weren't perfect and then they mixed it all together and then my generation thinks it's so cool to say deconstruction, which is not impressive. That's fleshly. That's the easiest thing you could ever, ever do is deconstruct. And so then I have kids and then because of my background and, and like I went to church Three times a week. There was no option for a pastor's kid, right? So, so then I have a son. And what if I say, Jack, man, no, it's okay. Play baseball. Go ahead. Two weeks out of four is great, man. It's not about going to church, which it isn't, but it is, we know. And then we just keep going, right? And then one day my son is going to have sons. And then one day their sons are going to have sons. And before we know it, we're in 2023 where the Bible belt is something we hold on to. Oh, we're still the Bible belt. Are we? Church, like, yeah, we have a million churches on on every corner. Maybe that's what that means. But I feel like today, I want to identify this as the generational drift. And the generational drift, the word drift here is used very strategically. Because I don't believe that we get to wake up one morning and say, "I'm, I'm done following Jesus. Now, if you've been in this room and you've either had that or you are thinking that currently yeah, it's real for you now, but that wasn't a one-time decision. Those were little decisions made throughout your life that have led you to this point. And so what I like to call it is a generational drift because drifting is to go slowly off course until you're no longer going in 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 the direction that you thought you were going in. You just drift slowly but surely. And dangerously, some of you are in the room and you find it hard to listen to me now and you find it hard to sing And you find it hard to give because you've drifted. And we're so glad you're here and a part of our family because all of us drift, all of us struggle. But today is the moment Asaph is like, don't let it happen to the next generation. A, get back with this generation, but B, don't let it happen to the next generation. And so in order to explain thoroughly verses 3 and 4, he goes on to verse 5. He gives us a history lesson of the Israelites so far. He established a testimony in verse 5 in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. Church, if you would go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, because I believe Asaph is, is grabbing from the Old Testament scripture that he would have known. Here he's saying, uh, yes, if you look back at the story of the Israelites, right? It's this amazing story where God saves them from captivity, brings them through a desert for 400 years, and, and gives them manna, gives them food, gives them cloud by day and a fire by night, and, and shows them in these incredible wonders. But then what? They forget. And they fall. It's the story of Moses going on a mountain, getting the Ten Commandments. And by the time he's down, they've already made a golden calf, which is a little bit impressive because that's crazy. That's like two days. And then it's all the way bad. Immediately forgetting, immediately worshiping something that's easier. And this is what he says. They are on the precipice of the promised land in Deuteronomy 6. It's this incredible picture. He's like literally holding the people back, the millions of Israelites, And he's saying, before we step foot into this promised land, Deuteronomy 6, verse 1, I find it as a father speaking to his son. I find it right now, I'm I'm raising, my wife and I are raising a 20-month-old baby. Uh, Currently, his favorite thing on the planet is to throw muffins. (laughs) Just around, I don't know. Uh, He loves it. And it's constantly us saying, all right, That's not what I want you to do in this situation, right? And so therefore, he wants to touch everything. He wants to ask everything. And so what do we do? We put boundaries around him. Why? Because I know what's best for him. So God, knowing what's best for these people, these Israelites, that Moses is holding back from the promised land, essentially saying, hey, if I just let you go and you just live passively, entitlement is gonna creep in. And you're gonna think that you deserved this promised land that'll preach. I think maybe pride will will creep in. And you think that you deserve this. And so this is what he says in Deuteronomy 6 verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. That you may, and underline this, fear the Lord your God. You and your son and your son's son, three generations right there, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Church, I want to give you some ways from this passage that that Moses, that God is trying to teach them to fight the drift. The first way to fight the generational drift is to love God's commands. We, we see some words here. That as a pastor's kid, but also just maybe being in church for a long time, you can kind of go, ooh, like there's, there's a little tough words to, to chew here. Words like commands and statutes and rules. And you're like, oh, I wasn't, I'm not a religion for all the rules and legalism, right? We, we fight against legalism for, for right ways. But I think we do it too far. We're not just actively, passively, sorry, living in this world and allowing us to do whatever we want to. No, there has to be guidelines for a healthy relationship with Jesus or literally anything. And so what he's saying here is these command statutes and rules, they make us squirm a little bit, but not if we understand the heart of God. Not if we understand that God wants us to know that we have been fully loved, fully forgiven, and fully redeemed. So yes, God is a God of love. We should absolutely understand and have the right view of God. He is merciful, gracious. All the words that We and other preachers will just sit and talk about forever. But also, church, this is the hard part. This is where relationship works in. This is where dependence happens. He's also a God who needs to be trusted enough to obey. He is a God who is to be followed. There has to be a good mix. We can't just be about a God of love and not a God of boundaries, right? So the first way to fight that drift is to love his commands full stop if we just did that, we would be closer to the Lord. But man, the selfishness creeps in, the entitlement, the things, the pastoral part of me that's like, does he really mean this? Yeah, he does. And we learn that from this psalm. Look down in verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your might. <clears throat> and as I was thinking about this, we don't do that, do we? We just don't, right? We we do it somewhat little bit. We're close to it. We love God. Sure. I mean, obviously, that would be the number one answer on what does it mean to be a Christian. You love God. Cool. A gold star, is what I tell my students. Awesome. That means literally nothing, because that's not what this verse says. It doesn't just say to love God and have affection for God. No, no, no. It says, hey, Chris Wegman, that's me, love God with all your heart. And then I I say, yeah, but God, that's my family. Like, my heart, the past 21 months, has been ripped to shreds in a great way and put back together bigger and better, and I just adore my son, and I adore my wife. And so I, I, I sometimes go against God, and I say, yeah, but that's mine. Like, you've given me this family, and I think this is the right decision. And God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and everything that you have. The second way to fight the generational drift, first way is to love God's commands. The second way is to love God with Everything. What I do so often is I misunderstand the object of my love. And you know what I do? Even after 31 years of doing it, I don't learn my lesson. I put the object of my love on a person. People are the worst, church, right? They're the worst. I'm kidding. Maybe. It's a tough thing to do to put your object of your love on a human being and say, okay, don't let me down. Even though we've been let down hundreds of times before by people very close to us or by random strangers. And we say, okay, yeah, but the object of my love is people because I'm supposed to love people and they're supposed to love me back. That's why in this scripture and in a lot of places in the the Bible, God says, nah, Chris, you're supposed to love me with everything. Because once you give me everything, then I'm going to give you a right view of loving people. Second way to fight the drift is to love God with everything. Look down at verse 7. You shall teach them, and dads, I want you to underline this, diligently. I'm only 21 months into being convicted about that more than ever. I've been preaching God's word for 12 years. I've been a pastor's kid my whole life. But being diligent with your child is obviously a lot. (laughs) And my son right now is actively learning how to sin. It's It's an interesting thing when you really watch it in real time with the muffin thing. Um, But I get to be diligent. Diligent to teach him uh, diligently to your children and then shall talk to them. And this is easy. Don't make scripture harder than it actually is. When you sit at the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Here's a third way to fight the generational drift. Love God's words. We should be so Infatuated with the words of God. Things like the ammo that we need to fight against anxiety and stress and thinking that I'm less than. When I look in the mirror and think anything less than, I am fully loved, fully forgiven, and fully redeemed. I need to remember the words of God in my life. I need to love them so much that they become a banner on my life. Why? Because my heart is so prone to wander, so prone to leave and try to put my object of my love on a person instead. We need to love God's word. What that looks like practically is to normalize talking about Jesus in your home. Normalize worshiping God on the way in the car. My mom would always do that. Normalize having Christian community and actually fighting for it. Church, if you are struggling to find community, it's because you're not fighting hard enough. And I know that sounds tough and I don't know your life and background or whatever, but I know that for my family and I, and again, professional Christian, if I don't fight to go to group I won't go to group. There's a million different reasons why. One of them mostly just being, I want to stay home. We need to fight for Christian community. The audience right now would have eaten this up, right? They're, again, Moses is literally holding them back. They're like, yes, Moses, I love it. I'll never sin again, right? I go to summer camps every summer. And then we, obviously, what a sentence. Summer camp every summer. And then I also go to fall retreat every fall. And at those <laughs> retreats, uh, they, the kids are like, mountaintop experience. They're like, oh, Chris, I'm never going to sin again. (laughs) I've found it. Here I am, Lord, send me. And then two days later, (laughs) just wilding out, right? You're like, wow, you really really lied to me, didn't you? Yeah, it's like, dang, you didn't think about it at all. And and this is what they're thinking. They're like, yes, let me go, let me go. Look at verse 12. He recaps all that God has done in the Exodus and and verses between here that I didn't get to. He says, uh, you're going to go to houses in the promised land that you didn't build. Ooh, so good. You're going to eat food that you didn't make. God's like, hey, people, it's all been me. I've taken care of everything that you see. Therefore, verse 12, take care lest you forget the Lord. And then he reminds them again. What a a dad move, right? What a father move to us, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of Israel. I see them cheering like at a football game when your team is winning. They're just like, yes, this is it. But we know in 2023, the end of this story, these people completely forget about God. Not all of them, but the majority. And the majority of a million people is a lot of people. What happens? How do they do it? That's why I think the word drift is where I want to land today. That's why I think the word drift is where I want you to find life from and fight against this week in, in your time with the Lord. Because drifting does not happen overnight. It happens by little decisions that you make to, in passivity and things that you don't even think about. Because if you've drifted for so long, then you're not going to think, oh, this is a moment where I could drift or I could go to church. No, it's going to be an immediate decision. Of course, I'm going to drift. I've become comfortable with this. My family now is not in church. I'm I'm not in church, and I don't believe in whatever. And you just start drifting away from where God actually wants you to go. So how did that happen? They drifted. And church, they get a bad rap, but we know that the Israelites, they're us. We're the Israelites in that story. I'd love to be Moses, right, being a prophet, being a cool guy. I mean, Moses, you know, he had his troubles too. But no, we're the Israelites. We keep forgetting. God keeps staying faithful. So Asaph has this. Get back over to Psalm 78. Asaph has this and many more stories in his mind when he's writing this psalm. He says, listen to me, Israel. We will not hide these stories of God's faithfulness. We will tell the coming generations in church. God's provision in your life is not just for you. It can't be just for you. It's so that God's provision is lived out through you to your kids and to your coworkers." and to your family, and to the people on the streets, and to the person checking you out at Publix, and to the waiter that waits on you at lunch today. It's so that God's provision in our life is so on our lips. There's a beautiful psalm that says, that "His words are on my lips. I meditate on it day and night. Why? Because you're a weirdo? No. No, it's because I need to filter everything through Scripture. Because if I don't, I'm going to drift. And for me, I'm going to run towards selfishness. Every morning, every morning I wake up, I don't actually have to run towards it. I start in selfishness. So with all of that, we get to know that his blessings are generational. That he is not just wanting to love your kid. He is not wanting you to just show them a good life. He's wanting, them, he's wanting you to show them how much it means to love Jesus. Look at verse seven. I've been waiting two weeks to talk to y'all about this verse. And, and it's so good that I want to take it really slowly. Because as you can tell, I don't really talk slowly. (laughs) Some of you are like, all right, here we go. Um, Verse seven. So that they should set their hope in God. The word set here is obviously an active word. And I use this in in students, and I think anyone could hear it. And it is a 2.9 GPA illustration. Here we come. Uh, If I want something to be on that table, I cannot pray it to be on that table I can't believe it to be on that table. I can't uh, telekinesis or whatever the one it is to get it from here to there, right? I can't do that. I would have to actively pick it up, clasp it with my hands, and then set it on this table. And if you look back at the Greek, the Aramaic, and the Hebrew, the uh, the common preachy joke is that it means the same thing. It means that if you're in this room and you want to find hope, you're never going to find hope unless you set your hope in God. And what that means is that no matter what happens, and again, easy for me to say up here, harder for me to live, but when I do it, and cancer happens, divorce, losing a job, all these things, my hope doesn't change. My, my, my happiness may change, for sure, but my joy is found in knowing that God is who he says he is, no matter what I do, no matter how bad I am. Setting is an active word. I think about parenting. I think about Jack right now being 20 months. And I think about one day I'm going to have to look at Jack after a breakup or after not making the team. I'm going to have to say, hey, Jack, you know those things were not created to hold the weight of your hope. Because if you don't get that part, oh, Jack, man, you're going to be up and down and anxious and fearful and Changing jobs because it doesn't satisfy you and changing spouses because that doesn't work and changing all these things when in reality, God is not asking Chris Wegman to have hope in him when it's easy. No, set it and forget it. Once and for all, I set my hope in God so good. Look at the next part. And not forget the works of God. The word forget for me, reminds me of the word darkness. Uh, We talk about this at Christmas Eve services, uh, but darkness does not have a literal definition. It is literally just the absence of light. So someone defined light and then like, oh, what happens when that goes away? Darkness, right? So that means that we always, if there's darkness in your life, enter light into it and it will go away immediately, right? I think it's the same thing about forgetting because the definition of forgetting is just a failure to remember, and that's really good. Because you know why, church? I don't forget who God is and his faithfulness overnight. No, because that means that he was faithful last night. Oh, man, I'm living on the promised land right there. He is faithful. Boom. But has that been 10 years ago? Has, that, has the biggest thing, whenever someone asks you, how has God shown up in your life? You're like, man, 15 years ago, he showed up in a big way. Oh, heck yeah, that's great. What about Yesterday? These show up yesterday in your life? Because here's what he says. Don't forget. Make Make it a point to not forget these things that God has done. We need to make it a pattern in our lives to use God's blessings and faithfulness as ammo against the enemy. We need to become so aware of how good and faithful he is that every moment where we feel less than or where we feel that God is silent or distant, he's not. Why? Our hope has been set in him. We have, and then also we have not forgotten the works works of God. Look at the last part. Last part is, but keep his commandments. The word keep here is obviously another active word. It's the same word that's used to keep your house clean, right? With kids, this is a travesty. Every day you're like, all right, we got a lot of work to do, man got to keep the house clean. What about keeping out of trouble? You will never be out of trouble unless you do the right things and follow the rules. This is what scripture is saying. More importantly though, this is what Asaph, on, on behalf of God to his people, being a prophet, says, oh Israel, first verse, oh Israel, don't forget. So Northway, have you forgotten how good God is in your life? Has it been a while since you've spent some time and figured out how he's been faithful in the past? Because here's the cool part, right? Like if you actually do that this week and you spend active time writing out the faithfulness of God and how he's been faithful to you, and that takes a while, isn't it the best news today that that's what worshiping God looks like? Is spending, you ready, time with him? I'm not good at it, man. I'm all over the place. I do a lot of things, whatever. I get busy but when I spend time thinking of how God has been faithful, 15 years ago comes up. But also yesterday, when my son smiled at me, nah, he is faithful then too. Today, as I go home to whatever I go home to, he's still faithful. But on days that I don't think about it, it's not because he's not faithful, it's because I've forgotten. I've drifted. So today, you can have victory in your marriage. God did not call us to coast in our relationship with him. He did not call us to raise our kids, to love the things of this world more than the things of God. He did not call your marriage to barely get by and to have all of these hurdles. No, he called us immediately after coming to know him to have victory. Why? Because we're good? No, 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 polar opposite. Because we are not good, And if we do the dependence on him thing, then he is gonna show himself faithful every single time. He is going to be faithful. He wants to create a generational love for God in your children. And here's what I'm not talking about. Being a student pastor for 12 years, it's shocking. To know, to, to hear what my kids, what my students think loving God is, what it means. Not cussing, not doing bad things. Here's what I'm not talking about. Living sixth through 12th grade in a, in a like made-up land where it's all happy, it's all Jesus-y, we go to summer camps. But then when they go to college, forget it all because it wasn't real. No, he wants to create a generational love for God in your kid. He wants Jack, my son, who barely knows words. He has already given him the victory in his life so that one day my son will have a son or daughter and the victory will continue. His blessings are generational. They can't not be. His blessings are generational. We just seem to forget it. He is pleading with you. Tell the next generation about the faithfulness of God in verse 7 of Psalm 78. Don't forget who He is. Set your hope in God. Don't forget what He's done, the wonders of His amazing love, and don't forget that He wants to use you to change the world right now. I believe this morning... God is wanting to break the generational drift in your family. And and, and if you come into this room again, however you do, we're so glad you're here and we don't want you to pretend because it's funny, even when we do, God sees through that and he says, Chris, you're hurting. Why don't you come to me? Chris, I get it. You got a smile in front of your students and you're a pastor, but Chris, you haven't spent enough time with me and you know that. What if we loved God's commands enough to say, oh, it says to be diligent in telling my son about Jesus and leading my my family and and knowing him. Done. Every day. Some days I'll fail. Of course. Duh. But that's not going to stop me. I'm not, it's not going to create a drift for me. So if you're in the room and you've drifted, I get it. The beautiful part about knowing Jesus is that it has nothing to do with your performance. And that's, Excellent news. That news right there is good enough for us to stand for the next song and actually, you ready? Actually worship Jesus. Do you know why worship songs repeat a million times? (laughs) It's because maybe the 17th chorus, it'll finally lock in. Maybe to a person in the room that you don't sing and you don't respond and you like to stay whatever Baptist, that's great. (laughs) Do what you need to do. But for me, Man, I get so caught up in whatever. And then that 10th chorus comes along and it says, God, I'm so thankful that you are good to me. Like that last song. And this next song is talking about how God is in the hurt with us. He's right there with you this morning, this week. Lead your family in the faithfulness of God.